Had I not been on the schedule today, or maybe not even the first one, I might have tried to beat Bevard's record back in the fellowship hall, but I thought it prudent to eat a light meal when Tex-Mex is on the menu, and I enjoyed the meal thoroughly, the fellowship, the seeing, it's all been great today. I want to thank the congregation at Wheeler for putting this together, and thank you for uh, considering me. I hope that what I had to say to you today can be helpful to you in learning how to love your neighbor And we're going to talk about loving my neighbor in the church. And that seems like a very sort of counterintuitive thing to think about because I don't think of any of you as my neighbor. I think of you as my family. And we're going to deal with that subject as we go along. But as Sean has showed us this morning, loving my neighbor simply means loving anyone who needs it around us. Whether it is truly our neighbor, whether it's our brethren in the church, whether it's a stranger that we meet on the road. And I hope that I can say something about that today that will be helpful to you. You know, when you think about loving your neighbor, you know, I used to have a a boss uh, a few years ago that we had project meetings at work, and we'd talk about uh, different things we had on those projects, and he always talked about low-hanging fruit. He said, let's get that low-hanging fruit. Let's get the easy, quick wins, and let's, you know, let's get those out of the way first, and then we can worry about the, the difficult stuff. I sort of see loving my brethren in the church, loving my neighbor in the church is the low-hanging fruit of this whole thing. And if we can't figure this one out, we might as well go home because there's no hope for us if we can't figure out how to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Loving my neighbor in the church, I think it starts with the gospel. As you consider, you know, it's easy to love our neighbors. We, it creates more opportunities. We're here with each other, you know, two to three times a week. We're in proximity. We have more opportunities are created for us to love one another, but also the common ground we all share is the gospel. And the gospel, when you think about it, is nothing more or less than the ultimate expression of God's love toward us. And learning how to love it all starts with the gospel because that's where we learn what it truly means to love. And Sean did a great job this morning talking about what love is. I want to break down this passage that we read about in 1 John chapter 4. Sean read some of it, but I want to read this short passage here. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loves, loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now, there's a lot going on. You could do a whole sermon just on this one passage of Scripture. But I want to break down a few key points that I think are important for us to understand about love going forward today. First of all, we have the command, not the suggestion, to love one another. And if there's any doubt about the way that's worded here, we're going to read John chapter 13 later where Jesus says, A new command I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. He didn't say here, Beloved, let us love one another, possibly. Or I think it might be a good idea if you think about loving one another. Or it might be beneficial for you to consider that. He says, you love one another. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. It is not just a suggestion. It's not just a good idea. It is a command. And it ought to be one that's easy for us to follow. Number two, there's no love without God. Sean talked about this too. The worldly definition of love. Hollywood's idea of love. No love without God. He who loves is born of God and knows if you know how to love, that means you know God. If you don't know how to love, that means you don't know God. 
And any definition of love that we come up with has to originate with God. He invented it. He wrote the book on it, literally. God invented love. And there's no love without God. Number three, the gospel, as we've already mentioned, is love manifested. The love of God was manifested or made known, exposed, made visible, realized, or thoroughly understood through the person of Jesus Christ, through the gospel, his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. And so with these concepts in mind of no love without God and the true expression of God's love being the form of the gospel, if you ever have a question about what does it mean to love, you've got a place to go. You've got a place to go. That's how you love someone. Because love is a deliberate and sacrificial choice. It's not a feeling or an emotion. It's not something that happens accidentally. We don't fall into love. I know the world calls it that like that, but that's not what it is. It's a deliberate, sacrificial, and selfless choice to act for the good of the recipient of that love. And so he concludes this by saying, if God can love us in that way, we can love one another in that way. That's the way we need to love one another, just the way that God loved us, to make the deliberate and selfless and sacrificial choice to act for the good of our brothers and sisters within the church. That should be something that's almost second nature to us, and for many of us it is. There's a passage here I want to read in Galatians chapter 3. I've very happily been doing a study on the book of Galatians at home, and I've, this passage of Scripture really kind of came out to me here recently, and I really like what it has to say, and I think it has a lot of bearing on what I want to talk about today. Paul says in Galatians 3.26, You are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's main mission with, with the letter to the churches at Galatia was to, to deal with this concept of the Judaizers who were coming in and telling these Gentile Christians, hey, if you want to be a real Christian, you've got to obey the law of Moses. And so he's trying to separate that and show that the gospel breaks down those barriers. And so he starts out here talking about the, the commonality that we all share as Christians, and that is legal heirs of God through our faith in Christ Jesus. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And I want to apologize to Brother David because I think the New King James and the ESV translate this just a little bit better, so I'm just going to mention that. And it may seem counterintuitive, but it says you are all the sons of God through Christ Jesus. And I don't want the ladies to get offended at that because it's very important that it's translated that way because in that time it was the firstborn son of a family who was the legal heir and so what Paul is saying is like well all you women you know you can be sons you can be men too that's not what he's saying what he's saying is it doesn't matter if you're a man it doesn't matter if you're a woman it doesn't matter if you're firstborn or 50th born you are all legal heirs of God through Jesus Christ it levels the playing field and then he says, those of us who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And I know we like to talk about this verse a lot when we're talking about the essential nature of baptism. But I think the most important part of this is the fact that we put on Christ. That word to put on literally means clothed with Christ. And that takes on a whole new definition. And I used this example a few weeks ago in Amarillo, and I think it, it works pretty well, at least in, for, from my understanding of this passage. What does it mean to be clothed in Christ? Well, number one, it means we find our primary identity in Christ. Who we are, what we are, what we say, what we do, where we go, how we think. That's our primary form of identity. What are you, first and foremost? Our answer should be, I'm a Christian. 
and that hopefully it's true. Number two, to be clothed in Christ means we have a closeness with Jesus. There's nothing physically closer to me right now than my clothing. Nothing in this room closer. Jesus ought to be like that for us spiritually. When we're clothed in Christ, there's nothing closer to us than Jesus Christ and his will for us. Number three, an imitation or awareness of, you know, I take my clothes with me wherever I go. Wherever I go, I've got my clothes with me. Wherever we go, Jesus should be with us. My mom's mother, my mamma used to say, used to tell my mom when she was younger, trying to figure out if you need to go into a place, ask yourself this question, if I go in there and Jesus comes back, would he go in there to get me? And that's a pretty good piece of advice, but you know, a step forward from that is, he's always with you. He's always there. And being clothed in Christ means I've always got that awareness in my mind. And I'm always trying to imitate what Jesus would do what he would do in my place also, but what will I do knowing that he is actually there with me spiritually? And number four, acceptability. My sister-in-law got a kick out of this one when I talked about it. It's acceptable for me to be on this stage today because I'm wearing clothes. If I were not wearing clothes, I would be ashamed and you would be disgusted, right? That's how it would be. I find acceptability with God because I'm clothed with Christ. And instead of looking down at me and seeing a naked, filthy wretch, he sees the blood of Jesus. Now, what does that have to do with our subject today? Because this is all of us. We all have been baptized into Jesus Christ. We all have been clothed in Christ, and that levels the playing field. Therefore, he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, what Paul is saying here is not, well... None of our roles and responsibilities matter in terms of whether I'm a man or a woman or my responsibility as a, as a wealthy person towards those who have less or if I'm someone who has more power to those that are weaker. He's not saying those things don't exist because we see time after time in the New Testament where he talks about the different roles and responsibilities we have. What he's saying is despite our differences, despite the things that separate us, there's one thing that brings us together and that's the blood of Jesus. And if we can't love each other because of that, why could we? That's why this is so important. The gospel shatters barriers, and it makes us all family, and we need to love one another. And it ought not to be very hard to do that. So what does it look like? What does loving my neighbor in the church look like? And last year, when I was initially invited to be part of this, I was given sort of a four-point outline, if you will. And I'm going to stick to that for the most part, maybe add a, a couple of things on there, about the inner workings, if you will, uh, what it means, what it looks like for us to love one another. What do we do? How do we put this into action? First of all, the idea of preferring one another. Galatians chapter, excuse me, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. What he's talking about here is a genuine love of the brethren. That word dissimulation, it's not one we use every day. He's just simply talking about love without hypocrisy. Love that actually means something. It's, it's not just a false front. It's not just a cloak for some other agenda that we have. But we truly love one another. There's a quote that I like by C.S. Lewis. And this is a man. It's not scripture. You can take it or leave it. But it kind of helps me understand this concept a little bit. He says, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. And as soon as we... Do this, we find one of the greatest secrets when you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. Now, he's not talking about hypocrisy here. 
He's not saying just pretend to love your brethren and I'll be okay. What he's saying is don't wait for the feeling or emotion that everybody says, well, I'm not sure if I love them or not. And maybe we say, well, I don't want to be disingenuous in my love. If I don't really love them, I don't want to be disingenuous. He's not saying don't. He's saying don't worry about those feelings and emotions. Just decide to love your brother or your sister. Just decide to do what you need to do to help them and to love them. And guess what's going to happen? Those feelings are going to follow. Those emotions are going to follow. And presently, you'll come to realize, I do love them. But it starts with that decision to say, I'm going to love them no matter what. Number two, to give preference to. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. When I was a little boy, I'd hear this phrase, preferring one another. And I thought, well, that means I'm supposed to prefer Christian friends over worldly friends. There's biblical precedence for that, but that's not what this verse is teaching us. He says, in honor, preferring one another. Okay, the ESV translate that, outdo one another in showing honor. Almost like it's a competition. You need to outdo one another in giving preference to. That means making way in the things that just don't matter. Giving preference to one another in the things that ultimately, what does it matter? This isn't talking about compromising our beliefs, compromising doctrine. It just simply means love one another and give preference to one another. Now, is it possible to take this too far? You know, there's, there's people in this audience today who won't commit the unpardonable sin, which is letting someone do something nice for you. You know who you are. We have that in us that, I don't need that. I've got everything I need. I don't need you to be, you know, sometimes people have less resources than we do. They have less time, maybe less talent. And if they have an opportunity to do something nice for you, don't take that away from them. Let them love you just like you're commanded to love them. Now, that doesn't mean that I can always just say, well, I'm just going to create opportunities for people to love me, and y'all just love me all you want to. I don't want to take that away from you. That's not what we're talking about. But you understand what I'm saying. Give preference to one another. Outdo one another. Talks about there in verse 13, distributing the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. We don't need to talk about that too much. We've seen the church come together time after time, helping people in need having hospitality. The word hospitality actually means love of strangers. We may get into that later with some of the other talks. I don't know. Opening our homes, opening our lives, making ourselves available, getting into the lives of our brothers and sisters, not as busybodies, but let me help you. How can I give preference to you and how can I love you? Number two, edify one another. Build one another up. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 12. Even so ye, for as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. And obviously, 1 Corinthians 14, we're dealing with the assembly. But in the assembly, out of the assembly, build one another up and seek to excel at that. Now, the church at Corinth, they had all these issues with people wanting all these different spiritual gifts and, and the ability to perform miracles. And Paul is reminding them that that's fine, that's great, I'm glad you want those things, but let's remember the, the point of these things. It's not just so I can say, hey, I can speak in tongues. It's so I can speak in tongues so I can edify someone who may speak a different language. In other words, whatever you're seeking to excel at, whatever you want to be good at, make sure you're doing that for the purpose of edifying your brethren. And then make sure you're excelling at edification as well. And that goes along with everything we do in the assembly from our teaching to our song service, to our communion service, everything we do here in the assembly to make it edifying for everyone, but it also includes outside the assembly. When we have fellowship with one another, build each other up and create those opportunities to do so. Oh, by the way, 
This works best when we're all doing it. And we all don't have the same talents. We all don't have the same gifts and abilities. But we all can do something. And this whole edification process works best when every single person is doing their part. You know, we read in Romans chapter 14, verse 19, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. This idea of preferring, giving preference to one another, that's edifying in and of itself. You know, when we're talking about, when we're arguing over what color should the carpet be in the auditorium, what does it really matter? Why don't you just let somebody else have their way? And as long as it's not pink shag carpet, you're probably going to be fine. Let's give preference to one another and let's make for peace in the things which are going to edify. And we can exhort and encourage one another. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I'm going to put on my elder hat just for a little bit this morning and maybe step up on a soapbox a little bit. I think it's kind of trendy for us to talk about the assembly in terms of the relative time that a Christian actually spends living. And we say, you know, the life of a Christian is so much more than what happens in the assembly. And there's truth to that. The Christian's life doesn't consist of just what happens in the assembly church. We go out into the world, we go to our jobs, we go to school, we interact with our friends and our family. A Christian's life is all of that included. We don't need to compartmentalize our Christian lives, but the time we spend here with our brothers and sisters, I don't think you can quantify that. I don't think you can, it's, I don't think it's proportional to the actual time spent doing it, if that makes sense. I figured up if you go to church three times a week and then spend an average of two hours with worship and fellowship, it's something like less than 4% of your actual time in a week. But I'm telling you, the numbers don't track through on how much of an impact it makes in your life and the lives of your brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, we need to attend the assemblies of the church. We need to do it every time. Every time the doors are open, we need to be there. You know, and we hear a lot from people about, well, you know, scripturally, what's required of me? What are the requirements of a Christian? From what I can see, we have to assemble on the first day of the week, and we have to come together and, and take part in the communion service, and that's really what, what God requires of me. You know, it kind of reminds me of my kids. Well, I'll say to the kids, hey, there's a, there's a load of laundry on the couch there. There's some towels that need to be folded. Need y'all to fold the laundry. Okay, Dad. And it's going to get done eventually. It may take longer than I expect, but it's going to get done eventually. But you know what's going to happen? I'm going to come into the living room a couple hours later, and there's going to be towels on the couch that have been folded, but they're still on the couch. Well, you didn't tell us to put them up. I didn't know that was expected of me. Oh, and the last 50 times as well. Is that true? I don't like this concept of bare minimum. What's the thing, what's the most I can do and get by? And when we get this concept of like, well, scripturally, I only have to be here one time a week. Is that what this is really about? Is this really about just coming together and then checking off a, a, a box on a list? Well, I got that one out of the way this week. Are we really saying our time together spent edifying one another and coming to praise our Lord and to worship Him and to remember His death? 
that it's about doing what's required of me. I'm just trying to do the bare minimum when he gave everything that he had and more. I'm lucky Jesus didn't look at me and say, now what's the bare minimum I can do? What's just the smallest amount that I could do? Father, do I really have to die? Do I really have to suffer? Isn't there, do we have to go all out on this thing? Can we just dial it back just a little bit so I don't have to suffer? Because that's the attitude we have a lot of times. Brothers and sisters, we need to be going to church. We need to be going every time, even when you don't want to. Even when you've had a rough day at the office. Even when, well, I'm just tired and I'm stressed and I can't keep my mind off this project at work and I know I'm not going to get anything out of this. It's not about you. Number one, it's about Jesus Christ. And it's about honoring him and serving him and worshiping him. But number two, it's about me. That's right, I said it. It's about me. I need you to be there. And it's about you too because you need me to be there. Oh, and by the way, this works best when we all do it. Okay, taking off my elder hat. I'm going to step down from my soapbox and move on. <laughs> bear one another's burdens. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I don't think we need to talk about this a whole lot. I've seen it time and time and time again in my life. Times of grief, times of heartache, times of distress tribulation, heartache. Nobody comes together like the church does in those times. I've been on the receiving end of it. I hope I've been on the giving end of it. Most of you have been on both sides of it. But I want to notice the context of this passage of Galatians chapter 6. He says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. That's the kind of burdens we're talking about here. Bearing one another's burden of sin. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, we're not talking about justifying sin or putting up with it or excusing it. We're talking about, let's restore that person. You that are spiritual, you restore that person in the spirit of meekness. Now, this is almost another soapbox issue for me, too, so hopefully I don't take this too far. But, you know, we this concept of restoring someone who needs it. I understand that scripturally, at times, we are obligated to withdraw from someone who just won't repent, who doesn't care about repenting. We understand that concept. But you know, as Christians, we stumble. We all do it. We all sin. We all make mistakes. Sometimes getting back up is a little bit harder for some people. And that's just the nature of sin and the nature of individuality. But you know, the burden of sin, it's a heavy burden. We all have to bear it. In fact, we can't bear our own burden of sin. We can't do anything about our own burden of sin without the blood of Jesus Christ. And when a brethren is overtaken, a brother is overtaken in a fault, how do we react to that? How do we respond to that? And I think a lot of times it depends on what the sin is. And that's where the problem lies. If we're really going to do this and do it well, and do it like this verse tells us to do it. We've got to discard some of our subjective and preconceived notions about degrees of sin. Now, I've never tasted beer in my life. It's never hit my tongue. I've smelled it plenty of times. That's why it hadn't hit my tongue. <laughs> I don't like the way it smells. I don't understand alcoholism at all. And I'm not saying that to brag today. It might mean something. It might be something to brag about if I didn't have other problems, but I do. 
what I'm saying is I don't understand alcoholism. But does that give me the right to look at a brother or sister that may struggle with that and say, just, just don't do it. Just don't do it. Or do I look at them with compassion and say, you know what, I may not understand what you're going through, but Jesus does. And let's talk about how we can fix this. Because I guarantee you I've got my own struggles and my own sin stumbles that I have to deal with. And I pray that one day somebody would look at me if I had that kind of problem would say, I don't understand what you're going through, but let's try to do something about this. We need to love one another enough. Considering your own, consider yourself lest you also be tempted. If a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Yeah, I don't understand alcoholism. And that might mean something if I didn't have other problems, but I don't. But I do have other problems. They're multitude, believe me. And we need to learn to discard these concepts. I look at someone and say, oh, they're caught up in some sin that I look at. I'm like, man, that is just, how does a Christian get to that point? When I myself, given the different set of circumstances, a different family, different friends, might have made the same choice. And I need to love my brethren enough to look at them and love them like God loved me. I want to talk about someone who could just, justly stand here and say, I don't understand that. But he sent his son down here so he would understand it. We do have a high priest who understands. And we need to be loving and understanding enough to our brethren to help them when we can. You know, I think very closely related to this is the concept of forgiving one another. The most difficult form of love, I think, probably. Safe to say. But also, I think, the most genuine and fullest kind of love that we can have for our brothers and sisters. And maybe it's so hard. You know, forgiveness is hard. It's difficult. And maybe a lot of times, this concept of letting go of our preconceived notions of degrees of sin, it's very closely related because a lot of times, that sin directly impacts us and affects us. And we ask the questions, well, how can I forgive that person? How can I forgive what he did? Or how can I forgive what she said to me? Paul says you're going to have to let go of all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking. Be put away from you with all mouths. You're going to have to let go of these things. These things are poison. The bitterness, the anger, the wrath. Now I've heard stories throughout the years of brethren that have had problems with one another over the smallest of things. And the problem is, the ironic part about not being willing to forgive someone who wrongs us, we look at it as a form of punishment for them. I say, well, I'm not ready, or I think I just need to let them think about this a little bit more before I decide to forgive them. The only person that hurts is me. All that bitterness, all that anger, it's like poison to me, spiritually. How can I forgive someone? How can I forgive someone who's done something horrible to me? I can do it for the same reason that God forgave me. He says, be ye kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. If Jesus can look down on me, a worthless sinner, and forgive me when I don't deserve it, but he can forgive me for the sake of his son, surely I can forgive someone else for the same reason. Is the blood of Jesus not good enough for us? Because if it's good enough for God, it ought to be good enough for us. And we need to learn to love one another enough to forgive one another as well.
I like the, the letter of Paul to Philemon. I wish we had time to, to study it in great detail today. We just don't. For those of you who may not be as familiar with that story, Paul wrote the letter of Philemon to a man named Philemon about a runaway slave that this man had named Onesimus. Onesimus had run away from Philemon, and he came across Paul, and Paul converted him to Christianity. And Paul, having come to love Onesimus and rely on him to a degree, decided it's time to do the right thing and sent him back to Philemon. And we read these verses here in Philemon verses 15 and 16. He says, For perhaps he therefore departed for a season that thou shouldest receive him forever, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, specially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, we don't know how Philemon responded to this. We can assume, I hope, that he accepted this letter and, and accepted Onesimus as his brother. Even if he didn't, it does not diminish Paul's message to him. A message of forgiveness and repentance and love. Yes, he, he ran away. Yes, he did the wrong thing. But guess what now? He's back. And not only is he back, he's not just a servant anymore. He's a beloved brother. What does it mean that we're beloved? If I'm beloved by you, if you're beloved by me, that means we be loved. Pardon the grammar. I don't like it any more than you do, I promise. But we be loved if we're beloved, right? That's what he's telling Philemon. Just love him. Love him as a brother. Jesus said in John 13, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You know, I find it interesting that he says it's a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, I didn't do a whole lot of word study on the word new, and I'm just taking it in its context as it's written. But, you know, I find that to, to kind of mean to me personally that even to these disciples of Jesus, who were from the nation of God's chosen people, even this concept of a sacrificial and selfless love wasn't something... It was kind of a foreign concept to them. It wasn't natural. I don't know that it comes naturally to us. It comes naturally when it comes to our family and our friends. I think it's pretty natural. Jesus said, you know, it's easy to love those that love you. But what he's telling them here was something foreign to them. You love one another in the way that I've loved you. And they hadn't even seen the full extent of that yet. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. How do people know you're a Christian? Do people know you're a Christian? You might say, well, I live a good moral life. That's, okay, that's fine. That's an indicator. But you know, there are a lot of atheists in the world who live what, relatively, we would look at and say, they're a pretty good moral person. Well, I go to church three times a week. I, I've already told you how I feel about church attendance. I love it. Do it every time. But you know, I had someone I used to know say, well, being in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a mechanic. And there's truth to that. The point he was trying to make was not true, but that's true in and of itself. Just because we come to church doesn't mean I'm a Christian. Like, well, the church that I attend, we are doctrinally correct. We look to the New Testament alone for our doctrine, the way we worship. And that's, again, I'm all for it. I want that in our assemblies. Jesus said, here's how people are going to know. All men will know that you're my disciples when? When you have love one for another. 
And I hope and I pray that every single person in this room will be known as a disciple of Jesus. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you'd like to know more about this subject or any other Bible topic, send us a message at our Facebook page, The Church of Christ, Wheeler Area.